of God. Uh, before I get started uh, looking at, into God's Word, uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, so I just wanted to pause for a moment uh, and, and recognize, uh, as we're gathered uh, together today, to recognize the one who laid his life down for us. I wanted to recognize those among us um, who have uh, literally laid down their lives, um, put their lives on the line for us. Uh, so if there's anyone who's served uh, in any way in, in the military, uh, or even uh, mom or dad of somebody who is currently serving, uh, please uh, stand up so we can thank you for your service to this country. Anybody? Thank you, thank you. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking um, at Acts chapter 20. So if you can turn there, um, that's going to be our text for this morning. I'm not going to read it straight through. We're going to be hopping around um, different verses as I go through. Um, but I hope the, uh, the story will come through. The text will, will shine through my words. Uh, I should mention it's on page 1324 in your pew Bible. And if you just bow with me for a moment uh, in prayer. Father, it is a tremendous opportunity that we have uh, to come together every Sunday to look into your word and to receive instruction, uh, especially from Pastor Mark. Lord, um, just look forward to uh, what you're going to teach us this morning, Lord. I pray that you would uh, help me to, to remain calm. And just to speak the things that you've, you've taught me. And I pray that the hearts would be receptive to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, life is, life is full of endings. Call me a pessimist, but I say life is full of endings. Particularly in relationships. In every relationship, there comes a time when we have to say goodbye. Maybe it's just a simple goodnight when you put your kids to bed. Or maybe it's the end of a work day when you say, see you tomorrow. Or maybe it's a more serious goodbye, like when you move, say, to another state. You know, despite emails and cell phones, Skype and FaceTime, distance brings a separation. You can't hug somebody over the, interne- uh, over the Internet. You can't fax a homemade meal. So we still say goodbye. A few months ago, I had to say goodbye to my oldest child, Nina, when she started college. Now, I was confident that I would see her again, Lord willing, in a few months. But it was tough. I was really overcome with emotion. Now, there's a lot of factors that are tangled up in a goodbye, like the one I said to Nina. It was sort of a whole life flashing before your eyes kind of experience. I was remembering her growing up, remembering the good times, the tough times, the funny times, and the sad times. I knew I'd miss having her around. I knew I'd miss talking with her and doing things together as a family. But there was more to it than that. It was the end of a stage of life. It was being on the brink of an uncertain future. It was thinking of the challenges and opportunities and joys and sorrows that lay ahead of her. I wanted to be able uh, to give her all kinds of advice at that point to help her guide her through things that hadn't even happened yet. Looking back, I realized that a big part of what I was feeling was connected to wondering whether I did a good job of being her dad. Was I ready to say goodbye? To say a good goodbye? Had I brought her up right? I mean, was she ready to be on her own? And underneath those questions was the larger question, had I lived my life in such a way that looking back, I could say I had done all that I should have done as a dad? Ultimately, 
though we might not like to think about it or talk about it, or maybe we just don't want to admit that we think about it, the day will come for each of us when we will say goodbye forever. Goodbye to life and to everyone on this side of eternity. Then we'll have to face those kinds of questions on the ultimate scale. Am I prepared to say goodbye to this life? Have I lived my life right? Have I done all that I should have done? Are the people that I'm leaving behind better off because of my time with them? Can I say a good goodbye to everyone? In Acts chapter 20, Paul says goodbye. And what he says speaks volumes as to how we can be prepared ourselves to say a good goodbye when the time comes. First, I want to set the scene. Acts chapter 20 tells the story of Paul's farewell tour. The chapter opens with Paul leaving Ephesus after three years of missionary work there. He spends a few months making a circuit. He's visiting churches in Macedonia and Greece. Then he reverses his path and he returns east towards Ephesus, where he started from, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Very few details are given in Acts 20 about most of Paul's stops along this route. Well, what we know is that, as we read in Acts 20, verse 2, he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation. Paul is visiting the churches that he planted during his previous visit to these regions. He's visiting them to encourage them and to build them up. Now, as he heads back east towards Jerusalem, his heart is burning within him. You see, he knows this will be his last visit to these churches, that he will not see them again. If you turn toward the end of the chapter, in verse 25, he says, And now, behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. So this is Paul's farewell tour. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he knows he will not be back this way again. He knows he will not see these churches ever again. And when I say churches, I don't mean buildings. I mean the members of the body of Christ, his beloved brothers and sisters in Jesus. Paul so loved his fellow saints. He considered them as his children in the faith. His heart rejoiced when he heard good reports of the strength of their faith. And he wept and wrote letters of admonishment and correction when he heard that they were going astray or facing false teaching or fighting amongst themselves. But now it's time for Paul to say goodbye to these dear brothers and sisters in Greece, Macedonia, and Asia. The accounts in Acts 20 give us a look in on two stops that Paul makes on this farewell tour two cities, Troas and Miletus. Paul preaches in both of these cities. In one case, in Miletus, we have a record of the words that he speaks. In the other case, in Troas, we have only a description of the events surrounding his preaching. Now, the names Troas and Miletus, I guess, are not exactly household names. But I bet many of you are familiar with what happened to Troas. In Acts uh, chapter 20, verses 7 through 12, we find a recounting of the events surrounding a Sunday gathering in Troas and the particularly long sermon that Paul gave there. He went on till midnight, and one poor young man had the misfortune of falling asleep during that time. But he was sitting on the windowsill of a third story, and he fell out and fell to his death. That's what happened to Troas. Miletus is a stop that Paul makes as he nears the end of his travels. At this point, Paul is in a really big hurry. As we read at the end of verse 15, continuing on in 16, and the, and the day following we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now the port city of Miletus, it's only about 50 miles from Ephesus. Paul really wants to visit the believers in Ephesus, 
and he could have easily made the trip there. But God has an appointment for, for him in Jerusalem, and Paul knows it. As we go on and read in chapter 21, Paul does go uh, to the temple in Jerusalem, and he gets arrested there. And God uses the events that, that ensue to give him the opportunity to witness to many Jewish leaders, to two Roman governors, and to a king. And ultimately, the chain of events leads him to being taken prisoner and being brought to Rome, where he also preaches the gospel. At the time, Paul didn't know how this would all pan out, but he knew he had a divine appointment in Jerusalem. So now he feels out of obedience um, to, the, to the leading of the Holy Spirit that he doesn't have time to stop back in Ephesus. So here he is, right in Ephesus' Ephesus's backyard, so close to this church that he so loves, and knowing that he will not be back this way again. He has to say goodbye to them, and he doesn't have a lot of time to do it. So he sends a message to the elders of the church and asks them to come and visit him in the city of Miletus as Luke records in verse 17 of Acts 20. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, because Paul so loves the churches, I think it's important for us to pay close attention to what Paul says to the believers at Miletus as he bids them farewell. And as we do so, we're going to see some connections to the the events that happened at Troas. We'll find that both the sermon at Miletus and the events at Troas help us understand what it means to be prepared to say a good goodbye when the time comes. How is Paul able to say a good goodbye to his beloved brothers and sisters? You know, as I meditated on this chapter, I realized that there was one indispensable ingredient that underlied uh, Paul's good goodbye. The ingredient that makes his goodbye a good goodbye. And that is a life that has been lived fully devoted to God. The reason that Paul can say good, a good goodbye, and I love you and I want the best for you goodbye, a keep fighting the good fight goodbye, and a God be with you goodbye to the people at Troas and at Miletus is that Paul lived a sanctified life. That's the underlying ingredient to a good goodbye, sanctification. Notice what he says near the end of the chapter towards the conclusion of his goodbye message at Miletus. In verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This sums up Paul's goodbye. He is saying, God be with you, all you who are sanctified. And as we look into Paul's sermon, we begin to see that he is pointing them to a pattern of what the life of all those who are sanctified looks like. The pattern, this pattern has been laid out in Paul's life. Because he is sanctified, he's able to say a good goodbye to the churches. And his desire is that everyone follow that pattern, that they be sanctified just like he is sanctified, so that when the time comes, they will be able to say a good, that same kind of good goodbye like the goodbye that he is saying. But before we dive into the important details of what all this means, I need to define sanctification. What does sanctification mean? To sanctify something is to set it apart as consecrated or devoted to God, to make free from sin, to purify To sanctify something is to make something holy. According to Scripture, those who believe in Jesus are made holy. They are sanctified. There are two key aspects to being sanctified. Number one, it is a process. It occurs over time. And number two, it is a cooperation between God and the believer. It is a work of God, but it is a work that we cooperate in. How can we understand this? Here's an illustration. Consider the Ark of the Covenant. Was it holy? You'd have to agree that it was. It was the place where God's glory dwelt, the place where he met with Moses and with the high priests. 
The ark was what made the holy of holies holy, right? But what made it holy? What made the ark holy? Well, it was God's presence, of course. The ark was holy because God made it holy. He chose to appear in a cloud above it. He put his word, the commandments, in it. And that's why it was holy. But didn't the people also participate in making it holy? They contributed materials for his construction. They set those materials apart for God's use. Skilled craftsmen labored to construct it precisely according to God's instructions. They overlaid it with gold, and they hammered out two golden angels to to, uh, decorate its top. The craftsmen worked very hard to make the ark beautiful. So I think we're like the ark. We are holy because God lives in us, because he puts his word and his life and his spirit in us. But we, like the craftsmen who made the ark beautiful, are supposed to be about the work of making our lives beautiful, making our lives holy. In other words, sanctifying ourselves. What does the process look like? The sermon that Paul preaches in Miletus walks us through at least eight important components of the sanctified life. When it, come, when it came time to say goodbye, and when Paul was pressed for time, these eight elements are what Paul wanted to be sure the elders from Ephesus understood. I've split them up into two groups. The first four have to do with how we sanctify ourselves, our role in the process. The second four have to do with how God sanctifies us. We're going to look in, in uh, more detail at the first four. So don't despair. The sermon won't be quite as long as it might look from eight points. Um, But uh, we're going to look at both sides of the coin here. First, let's look at what Paul said about living the sanctified life. And uh, we'll we'll do this so that we'll be prepared to say a good goodbye, just like Paul was. So first, from Paul's sermon at Miletus, we see that preparing to say a good goodbye requires sanctifying oneself. How do we sanctify ourselves? In his sermon to the elders of Ephesus at Miletus, Paul gives us at least four activities that we should be engaged in. We sanctify our lives by one, bearing witness, by two, working, by three, taking warning, and by four, worshiping. I want to look at each of these here in Acts 20 and unpack them just a bit. So first, we sanctify ourselves by bearing witness. In verses 20 through 21, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the mission of Paul's life. Since the time that he had received his new life in Jesus, his mission was to testify to all of of repentance and faith. That is, he bore witness. He devoted, devoted himself, set himself apart to God, for the purpose of spreading the good news that if you repented from your sin and believed in Jesus, you would be saved. And this is the first means by which we sanctify ourselves. We sanctify ourselves by bearing witness. As he goes on to say in verse 24, bearing witness to the gospel is his job, his assignment. It's the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Did you ever think about sharing the gospel like that before? That it's part of being holy? But it makes sense, doesn't it? As Peter tells us, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the good news is a part of being holy. Now notice that Paul, that because Paul was faithful in practicing holiness by preaching the gospel, he is able to say a good goodbye to his brothers. Listen to his words in verses 25 through 27. He says, And now behold... 
I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul took very seriously the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, to be Jesus' witness to the remotest part of the earth. And because he devoted himself to that mission, to being Jesus' witness, he sanctified his life. So now when it comes time to say goodbye, he can say, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I declared to all the gospel. If someone that Paul met were to eventually find himself in hell, it would be because of their own choice, not because Paul had neglected to tell them about Jesus. And so Paul is able to say a good goodbye to Ephesus and to the whole world with a clear conscience. He was prepared to say a good goodbye because he bore witness. The challenge to us here is can we say the same? Has your life been impacted by Jesus? Has his love comforted you? Has his forgiveness lightened your load? Has his truth enlightened you? Has his joy filled your heart? Yes? Have you told anybody about it recently? Are we sanctifying ourselves by bearing witness? When the time comes to say goodbye, will we, like Paul, be able to say that we are innocent of the blood of all men? Second, we sanctify ourselves by work. So right off the bat, some of you may already be getting discouraged, myself included. We're thinking, well, I can't say that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. There are plenty of people I know that I haven't really shared with. And I know it's true. I'm, I'm right there with you. Does it come as a surprise to you that, that you're not perfect, that I'm not perfect? We've all failed. And we will all continue to do so until the day we die. But, but does that mean that we just give up? Are we just going to be satisfied with the status quo? I don't think that's the way to go. I think that when we fall, we need to get back up, dust ourselves off, and keep plugging away. The truth is that this sanctification stuff is not easy. It doesn't happen all in one great big flash. It's a process, and nobody ever said it would, would be easy. Quite the opposite. Paul makes it clear that living the sanctified life is hard work. A big chunk of what Paul preaches here in Acts 20 emphasizes how hard Paul worked. And so that's the second means by which we sanctify ourselves. We sanctify ourselves by work, hard work. But it's not just any old work. It's work in the service of God and others. Look at what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. He says, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how it was, I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me. As Paul says goodbye, he says, remember our time together? Remember what it was like when I lived with you and struggled with you and worked with you? Chapter 19 of Acts gives us more details about the time when Paul lived in Ephesus. There we read that he had lived in Ephesus for some three years. And while he was there, he devoted himself to reasoning daily with the people. He started out by speaking in the synagogues. Some believed there, but some, Acts 19.9, became hardened and they started speaking evil against the believers. So Paul left the synagogue, and he took his message to a place called the School of Tyrannus in Ephesus. Some manuscripts add here that Paul lectured from about 11 a.m. in the morning until 4 p.m. in the afternoon. <clears throat> and that would have been during the heat of the day when most people had their midday meal and rested. And at that time, the School of Tyrannus was likely empty and available for Paul to use. And keeping this schedule meant that Paul could work his trade as a tent maker to support himself during business hours. 
and preach the gospel during the midday hours when most people were taking a siesta. When the going got tough, Paul rolled up his sleeves and he got busy. And the Lord blessed his hard work. Because of Paul's teaching, the gospel spread among the Gentiles to the extent that many were persuaded to abandon the worship of the God of Ephesus, whose name was Diana. We know all about Paul's success because of the response of the Ephesian silversmiths and tradesmen, those who made their living building shrines to Diana. They were very upset about Paul because he was a threat to their prosperity, and they they held him responsible. They became so enraged that they sparked a pro-Diana demonstration that nearly engulfed, engulfed the city in a riot. But even this did not stop Paul. In fact, he would have jumped right into the middle of this near riot to talk to the people, as he had done so on, on many other occasions. But this time, his companions wouldn't let him. But that was Paul, ever eager, working tirelessly. Not even a near riot could, could chase him from the city. And it wasn't easy. It was hard work, but he kept at it. Night and day, as he says in verse 31. Night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul worked hard serving the Lord. He also worked hard serving those around him and supporting himself. You yourselves know, he says in verses 34 and 35, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul made a practice of working hard, to preach no matter the opposition, to support himself financially by earning a living, and by giving both of his spiritual treasures and his earthly treasures to those who were in need. All of this, serving the Lord, serving others, giving to others, is hard work. But Paul pressed on toward the goal. He left nothing on the field. When it came time to say goodbye, he could say, Remember how I lived my life. Remember how I worked hard to serve God and to serve others. And I don't think that Paul at all is is laying a guilt trip on the Ephesians. Look at how they received his goodbye. In verse 37, it says they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. In recalling his past with the Ephesians, I think Paul was saying, I worked hard while I was among you. It wasn't easy, but I did it out of love for the Lord and out of love for you. Remember how we struggled and worked together. Well, keep it up. Keep fighting that good fight. What we're seeing here is that Paul was able to say a good goodbye because he had sanctified himself by his hard work. And he can honestly say, remember how I lived when I was with you. Be like that. Imitate me. The challenge to us here as we pursue holiness is to work hard. Expect it to not be easy, but never give up. When the going gets tough, remember how Paul served the Lord with tears and with trials and yet never gave up. And remember Jesus, who took up his cross in love for us. Remember him and then follow in his footsteps. Third, we sanctify ourselves by taking warning. We sanctify ourselves by bearing witness. We sanctify ourselves by hard work. And now we sanctify ourselves by taking warning. What Paul has to say here about keep, uh, being holy has to do with keeping pure. Listen to what he tells the Ephesian elders in verses 28 through 31. There he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among, your, from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Be on guard, be, on, be alert. Remember, Paul says, remember what I taught you. Paul's concern here is that the Ephesians remain pure in the faith, pure in the, in the truth of Christ, in the truth of the gospel. He knows the false teaching can creep into the church from outside the church as well as from within. And Paul's message to the Ephesians is that the elders, the overseers, need to be on guard and shepherd the flock. To be holy, to sanctify themselves, the elders, as well as their flock, need to take warning. We sanctify ourselves by taking warning. As he exhorts the Ephesians to take warning, I can't help but think that Paul is thinking back to his midnight sermon there in Troas. So let's read what happened there in Acts 20, verses 7 through 9. There it says that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, And he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Poor Eutychus. But who can blame him? I'm not here to lay blame. I can't say that he was weak or that he wasn't working hard enough. To the contrary, he was probably doing his best to stay awake by moving to the window and getting away from the hot, smoky lamps to get some cool, fresh air. In fact, all of these believers were very dedicated. Back then, Sunday, the first day of the week, was a work day. Believers would meet early in the morning to celebrate the resurrection, and then they'd go to work. In the evening, after a full work day, they would gather again for worship for the Lord's Supper. And here, in this case, Paul spoke for two, three, maybe more hours, and it's midnight. And these guys need to get up tomorrow and go to work. I dare say such a schedule might thin our ranks a bit. What do you think? I have every admiration for these first century Christians. They work very hard serving the Lord. But Eutychus has a part to play in God's sovereign plan. I believe it was appointed for him to fall asleep and to die to serve as a warning. The warning is the same one that Paul is now giving to the Ephesian elders. Stay alert. Don't fall asleep. How will you know the truth if you're not paying attention to what is being taught? And how will you distinguish truth from error if you don't know the truth? How can you guide people away from error and toward the truth if you don't know the truth? How can you be hard at work meeting people's needs if your eyes are glazing over as you sit back in your easy chair watching TV, I mean, leaning leaning out an open third-story window? That's not the road to sanctification, says Paul. We need to be alert. We need to take warning. Eutychus is a good reminder for us, a good reminder uh, of being able to say a good goodbye. What kind of goodbye did Eutychus get to say? No goodbye at all. He fell asleep, slipped over the edge, and that was it. Is that the kind of goodbye that we want to say? Or do we want to be on the alert, on our guard, keeping ourselves free from error and guiding others also into the truth? Only if we take warning will we be able to say a conscious, intentional goodbye. Only if we are alert will we be able to say, remember how I did not cease to admonish you to help keep you grounded in the truth. The alert Christian knows the truth. The alert Christian spots error. 
and the alert Christian warns others. And so the alert Christian sanctifies himself by taking warning. Finally, we sanctify ourselves by worshiping the Lord. What I mean by worship in this context is not just what we do on Sunday mornings when we sing. Singing is good. Praising the Lord is wonderful. What I mean by worship here goes beyond worship and song. What I mean by worship is a Christ-centered orientation of the heart that serves as the underlying foundation for everything else that we do. Why do we sing to the Lord? Why do we bear witness? Why do we work hard? Why do we take warning? Why do we do these things? The answer should be that we do all these things out of a desire to give all that we have, all that we are, to the Lord. That's what it means to worship. This is exactly where Paul's heart is in his service. Check out his attitude as expressed in verse 24. I think this is the capstone of his sermon. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What is Paul's attitude? What does his value system look like? He is serving the Lord with total abandon. In his heart, in his mind, it's all about doing the work that God has prepared for him, ministering in the way that God has called him to. Serving the Lord comes first. Concern for himself and for his life, that is a distant second. In fact, it's not even second, it's dead last. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. This is true worship, telling God how much he is worth. How much is he worth to us? Everything. God is worth everything. So what can I give him? What can I sacrifice to him? How can I worship him to demonstrate that this is true? To show that I really believe that he is worth everything to me, there's only one answer. I need to give him everything I have. I need to give him myself. As Paul writes in Romans, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's only one right response to the gospel Only one right response to Jesus' taking on human form and giving himself for us on the cross. We are called to offer ourselves wholly to him, to not consider our lives of any account as dear to ourselves. And what does that look like? What does it look like when you live your life as if it's not your own, but belongs to God? It looks pretty radical. It means helping others when it's not convenient and doing it with joy in your heart without telling anyone that it's not convenient because our time is not our own and it belongs to God. It means not taking it personally when somebody mocks you or insults you because of your faith because it is really God that they are mocking. It is Jesus that they're offending. It means not holding grudges but instead forgiving one another just as God and Jesus has forgiven us because the sin was not really against us, it was against God. It means doing nothing from selfishness or pride, not looking out for our own interests, but rather humbly regarding one another as more important than ourselves and looking out for their interests. It means laying your life down for your family and friends because your life is not your own, it's God's. That's what a life sanctified by worship looks like. Do you think that if you really lived like that, if I really lived like that, that we'd be able to say a good goodbye Isn't there a joy? Isn't there an amazing freedom in saying, my life is not my own. I lived it for God while I was with you. 
And now, as we go our separate ways, may God be with you. Wouldn't that be the best goodbye you could possibly say? If we sanctify ourselves through worship, we can be confident that we are prepared to say a good goodbye. Now, at this point, all this may be a little overwhelming. If you're like me, you're probably thinking, this is too much. I can't do this. I can't live like that. I'm afraid to witness. As far as working hard goes, well, I'm already working really hard. I need a rest. And when it comes to being alert, well, maybe sometimes I'm more like Eutychus than like Paul. And if I'm really honest about it, well, I'm really pretty self-centered. I'm so far from being an imitator of Paul in these things that it's just hopeless. Now, you know what? You're right. That is to say, if you intend to sanctify yourself by bearing witness and working hard and taking warning and living your life in worship to God, if you intend to do all that in your own strength, under your own power, it is hopeless. But here's where Paul has some really good news for us. We are not left to do these things under our own power. Look what he says in verse 32. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. When Paul says goodbye, he says it the way it was originally intended. He says, I commend you to God. In other words, God be with you. And maybe you know that's where the word goodbye actually comes from. It's a contraction of the words, God be with ye. Goodbye. And that's the good news for us this morning. We recognize that being prepared to say a good goodbye means being sanctified. But at the same time, we also understand that we are ultimately sanctified by God. From this one verse, verse 32, we can see four truths about God's work of sanctification. First of all, we see that sanctification is a work of God. Who builds us up in verse 32? Who gives us the inheritance? God does it. Yes, we have to participate, but unless God builds, builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Uh, um, <clears throat> Paul commends the elders to God because it is God who sanctifies. Remember the illustration of the ark that I mentioned? You know, all the good works in the world are like the golden decorations on the outside of the ark. Good works can make us look good on the outside. They can actually make us more moral, but they can't make us holy. There's only God's presence in us, God's work in us, only those good works that are done by the power of God at work in us that make us holy, just like it was God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant that made it holy. We also see that uh, sanctification is accomplished by his wonderful grace. We see we see that Paul commends the elders to the word of God's grace. It is the word of God's grace that builds us up. In other words, sanctification is accomplished by God's wonderful grace. God gives freely what we do not deserve. He makes us holy, even though there is no way we can measure up to his holiness standard. And third, we see that sanctification is accomplished through his marvelous work, uh, sorry, marvelous word at work in us. Again, it is the word of God's grace that builds us up. Think what wonderful words God has spoken to us. He tells us that he has washed us, that he has forgiven us, that he has filled us with his spirit, that we are set free in him, that he is our strength, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that if he is with us, no one can stand against us. This is his marvelous word to us. For those who trust in this word, 
hearing it has an effect greater than just tickling our eardrums and stim- stimulating our cerebral cortex. This word works in our hearts and it works in our lives to make us more like Jesus. Sanctification is accomplished through his marvelous word at work in us. Sanctification finally is accomplished in us in a measure according to God's glorious wealth. Finally, we note Paul reminds the Ephesians of the inheritance that all those who are sanctified receive. When God sanctifies us, listen to this, he doesn't do the job halfway. His inheritance is no small thing. He gives us all we need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When God sanctifies us, he makes us more like Jesus. Jesus, who is perfectly holy. Jesus, with whom God shares his glory. This is the righteousness that God shares with us. This is the glory that God shares with us. When he lifts us up out of the pit and makes us new creations in him. And so I say sanctification is accomplished in us in measure, in measure according to his glorious wealth. We are being and will be sanctified far beyond what we can possibly imagine. So take heart as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Imagine that. God, the creator of the universe, is at work in you to make your life into something that brings him pleasure. Again, I say take heart. God is able to keep you from stumbling and will sanctify you entirely and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless. Faithful is he who calls you, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. So, are you prepared to say a good goodbye? The question is still before us today. Are you living that sanctified life? When you part company with someone, when your kids go off to college, when your job takes you to another state, or when the time comes for you to leave this earth, will you be able to, like Paul, say a good goodbye? Will your partings look like Paul's? Let's look at what happens in Acts 20, 36 to 38, when Paul finishes the sermon. There we read, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, and they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Now, people often cry as they did when they say goodbye to Paul. People often cry when they say goodbye. But the question is, why will they cry when it is time to say goodbye to you? Will it be because you have lived your life hard at work telling others the gospel and living out the gospel? Will they cry because you lived your life in love for those around you, speaking the truth, warning of error, helping the weak, and giving rather than receiving? And will they cry because you lived your life in full abandon for the Lord, with the attitude that you did not consider your life of any account as dear to yourself? Are you living that sanctified life? Are you prepared for the coming of the kingdom? The thing about preparation is it takes time. Are you prepared like the five prudent young women that we read about this morning, whose lamps were full? Or are you somehow thinking that you'll be able to run around frantically at the last minute and patch up everything like the foolish young women whose lamps were empty? You don't know when the time to say goodbye 
might come. It's like Eutychus didn't know. And so the time to start preparations is now. The good news for us this morning is that God is ready to do that work in us starting right now. Maybe you're like Eutychus after he fell out of that window. Spiritually, you're lying dead on the pavement. You don't know Jesus. The good news is that God doesn't want to leave you there dead. So let's read what happened to Eutychus. Pick up the story there in Acts 20, verse 10. Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And they took away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. God did a miracle there through Paul. If you hear God speaking in your heart today, the good news is that Jesus came down from heaven, came down to earth and lay in a tomb so that, he could, so that you could have life, just like Paul came down from that third-story window and fell down upon Eutychus and brought him back to life. If you want to be prepared for life's ultimate goodbye, the time is now. Now is the time, sorry. Now is the time to stop trying to get your life right on your own and to put your trust in the only one who can give you true life. And for those of us who have put our trust in him already, we need to continue our preparations. Continue our preparations. We need to pursue sanctification with all endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one by whom we are sanctified. And we can be confident that he will bring it to pass. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for the way that he challenges us to live a holy life. Father, we also thank you for the way that he encourages us by reminding us that it is you that makes us holy. Father, I just pray right now for anyone who is hearing my words, Lord, if, if you don't know them, if they would be unprepared like those uh, five young women whose lamps were empty, if they would be unprepared for the coming of your kingdom, and if you would say that to them, I don't know you, Lord, if there are those among us who you don't know, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in their hearts, that you would cause them to be born anew and to come to know you, that they would know you and that you would know them and that they would be prepared and the door would be open to them when, you're, when you come in your kingdom. Father, for the rest of us who know you, Lord, I pray that we would know you more and we also would be preparing for that day when your kingdom comes. We'd be living that holy life. And upon your return, you would find us ready for you. You'd be finding us working with all our hearts, worshiping you by giving you all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.